Good morning, Salem Chapel. So glad to have you with us. You can go ahead and take a seat. My name is Mark Duncan. I'm the pastor of students and outreach here at Salem. So glad that you are worshiping with us today. We're actually finishing up uh, our summer teaching series uh, today in what we've called Sunday School Stories, uh, going from lessons learned to lessons lived. And if you're not familiar with that term, Sunday School, uh, many of us grew up in a background where we went to church as children, and as part of that experience, we were sent off to classrooms, usually during the first part of the day, and then Loving people taught us uh, the stories of the New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, and, and, and many of us, that was a part of our childhood, kind of growing up with that. But I don't know if you maybe had a similar experience in that, is that oftentimes those stories were presented, uh, certainly as true stories, uh, but really more of like moral stories. Like these are good stories to walk away with, you know, and, 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 and we want to you know, celebrate who Jesus is. But I think that the challenge, though, is as, as we become adults, is sometimes we associate, maybe that was the first time we heard that story as a child, we associate that as a kid's story. Right? And there's no like, application for me in that today. And so this summer, we've been trying to uh, hammer the same nail every single week about who Jesus says he is, what he came to do, and how that matters to us today in 2020, okay? And so today, no different. We're finishing up that series with a story that's probably very familiar to you on the one hand, but I trust God has something for you in it today like he did for me this week in preparing. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of John, chapter number five, all right? John chapter five. And while you are doing that, I hope you don't mind, since it is Labor Day weekend, uh, I decided to get a head start and I brought my golf clubs with me today, okay? So I get my caddy to bring out my golf clubs, if you don't mind. Thank you, caddy. <laughs> Little known fact, Zach is uh, talented in so many ways. He cuts hair, he plays instruments, and he's a golf expert. Um, so... Seriously, though, so this week, actually, and before you judge my 1990s-era golf equipment, all right, just know I don't claim to be a professional golfer, all right, but this past week, uh, some of our church staff were able to participate in uh, the only time we actually play golf throughout the entire calendar year uh, in the Young Life Golf Tournament this past week, okay, and uh, we don't play to win, uh, we play to uh, survive, I think is the best way to put it, and, and have a good time doing it, uh, but you know, I, gotta, I was thinking, when I was look, every time I get these clubs out of the garage and I have to dig through all the other things to get to it. I'm like, why do you need so much stuff to play golf? You're like, isn't that kind of crazy? I mean, not only do you need a ton of equipment, but you actually have to literally take it with you over the entire course. You know, I'm so glad the person that invented the golf cart, you know, so you can just strap it on. But still, think about it. Like, you've got to have clubs like this in your bag. You know, what are these called? Woods. Yeah, drivers, right? So they're actually ironically not made of wood anymore, um, but we still call them wood. That's for getting off the tee box, right? Like getting the ball out there. If you are a talented golfer in the fairway, you know, if you're like me in the woods, okay? That's what these are used for. And then you have what you call your longer irons, right? These are your, these are your longer irons. And those are generally, like, you maybe not have the best lie in the fairway. And maybe you're in the rough a little bit and you need to get in the grass and get under the ball and hit it, hit it a long way. So you've got irons, you know, got a bunch of those. Then you have your shorter irons. When you get, theoretically, when you get close to the green, you can chip and the ball goes on the green. Now, when I do it, it goes over the green and behind the pin usually. But that's what those are for in theory. And you have to have like a bunch of them, right? Like 10 of those in your bag. And then when you actually make it to the green, you've got a special tool for that too, right? Like what's this? 
Yeah, everyone knows what this is because even the people that play mini golf know what that is, right? So the putter, usually, you know, for putting on the green right up to the hole. But it doesn't stop with the clubs, though, does it? There's so many other accessories you have to have in your pack. First of all, you got to have an umbrella, you know, because you never know how the weather is going to change suddenly. And uh, there's nothing like playing golf in a thunderstorm, right? It's invigorating, especially if there's lightning. But you want to make sure you have the right equipment for that. If you play like golf like I do and try to hit all the water hazards, you may have something like this in your bag where you can retrieve the golf balls. You know, it's also good for golf on a budget. You know, if you've only got a couple golf balls, you might have one of those in your bag as well. And then my personal favorite, if you play a lot in the woods, okay, and you play by yourself, you might have one of these in your bag for getting out of a tight spot, okay? <laughs> you get really creative with that. Never do that in the, when the clubhouse can actually see you. Just a word of caution on that one, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of funny how, how many clubs you have to have in the bag. But you know what's sad, though, is no, no matter how many clubs you have, and believe me, they come up with new ones all the time, all the different angles covered. There's a common problem, though, when I play. Even if I had all brand new clubs tomorrow, there's, there's not a lot of confidence I would have I would go out and score any better than I did playing at the Young Life Golf Tournament the next day. Why? You know what the common problem is? Me. <laughs> the common problem. You can put the nicest equipment in my hands, you get the top-of-the-line stuff, and it's still going to fall down. It's going to break apart in my hands once I actually get out on the course, right? It's not going to do the job that it's meant to do. Thank you, Caddy. I think I'm done with that for now <laughs> before I hit anybody with a bat. Um, so as I was thinking about golf clubs, right, this week, and kind of like the way that we need all of that equipment to do, to play this game. I think about how we have a kind of bag of sorts ourselves that we carry around, and that, you know, represents like different relationships that we have, different assets that we have, and different vehicles that we have that we look to for some form of safety, some form of security, some form of confidence, to get a job done that we perceive that we can't do unless we have them in our life or in place to do that, right? Like I said, it could be a relationship that I put a lot of investment into, that a lot's hanging on, and that it goes well. It could be also, you know, material, financial assets that I believe if I have those, that gives me a measure of safety and security and confidence for what lies ahead of me, right? We all have perhaps a bag like that. But like that bag and like the golf bag that I had earlier, there's one common problem that's at the center of all of that, all of those relationships that breaks it all down. You know what it is? Again, it's me. I'm the problem at the middle of that. That's why I can't put a lot of confidence into it. So we're talking about that idea of like the things that we, we put into our lives and we expect to save us. How much confidence do you have in those things today? And if you're like I am and say, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence and maybe 2020 has been a good year for exposing, you know, how the lack of confidence that we have in things that we thought were relatively safe or relatively secure in many ways, right? Don't we all recognize that, that truly we want a savior that actually can do some saving? And that's, and that's not going to come up short in the job, Right? That's what we're going to get at today in this picture of Jesus and this man at the pool of Bethesda. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And I want to leave you with this, this thought as we go into it today. It's one thing you want to get across. Only a true Savior can bring about true healing. Only a true Savior can bring about true healing. All right, so how do I recognize a true Savior? That's what we're going to answer that question today. All right, so John chapter 5. 
Verse number one says this, read it with me. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? All right, so let me explain what's going on here in this setup. So this pool that he's talking about, this pool of Bethesda, which the word Bethesda literally just means house of mercy. It was like a, a ritual cleansing pool uh, for the Jews to go to and ceremonially cleanse themselves before they went into the temple for their sacrifices, right? It was a way to get prepared, if you will, to go be in the presence of the Lord and to make atonement for sin. That was the idea behind it, at least initially. But if your Bible is maybe a different translation than the one that I read in the ESV, you might have recognized that there's a verse in your Bible that's not in what I read, all right? And there's a reason for that. If you've got the same translation I have, you might notice that it skips from verse three to verse five. Did you see that? All right, what happened to verse four? Like, isn't that important? Why is it in there? Uh, well, the deal is the ESV and, and, and translations like it take uh, their, their translation from older manuscripts. And in the oldest manuscripts, verse four is not actually in those. It doesn't mean that it's not informative to us to what's going on. Uh, it actually gives us a picture. If anyone's got that Bible, it may say something like this, that at certain times, an angel of the Lord would go down into the pool and stir it up. And, uh, and the first person that would step into the pool after it was stirred up would be healed, okay? Now, I don't know, like, the logistics. Again, that verse isn't in the oldest manuscripts, so they left that part out. But whatever was happening in that moment, in that pool, everyone expected something to go down when it came to healing, all right? I don't know what it was, you know, but everyone expected. Otherwise, why? There wouldn't be all of these people that had various, you know, bodily challenges on the sidelines waiting for that to happen so they could get into the pool. So Jesus comes to this place, to this pool of Bethesda. And when he gets there, it says that he saw a man that was laying there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, that's a long time, okay? But it's even, it's even a bigger deal given the fact that the average life expectancy at that time was also right around late 30s, early 40s. Okay, so this is a guy that has, his entire life has been unable to move, has been unable to walk, okay? And he is out there laying amongst the, the multitudes, it says, of other folks. And I love the picture of what happens, though, in the moment. As Jesus obviously intentionally came to that place that day, but he's looking around specifically for one man, and then he sees him. And in that moment, it says that he what? He knew him. He knew that he had been there a while. And he went to that guy. Why did Jesus see that man? Because he was looking for him. He was looking for the man that was there that was perhaps in the most desperate of states. Okay, this is a guy who could not walk. And the deal with the pool, at least the way they understood it was, whoever gets into the pool first is going to get the healing, okay? So this is a guy that can't move, and now he's got to fight all the other people that are there to be first one into the pool, all right? It's not looking very positive for his situation, right? And so this is the man that he comes to, and I, I love that about Jesus because he could have easily gone 
to the guy that had a sprained ankle that was on the front of the pool and be like, hey, brother, I got you. <laughs> you know, watch this. I can make you feel better. And be like, look, he's miraculously healed. He could have turned it into like one of those shows like the guys that would go around and sell snake oil back in the day and be like, and have like people planted in the audience be like, oh, yeah, he's suffering from that. Come up here, young man. I'll heal you with my magic words. You know, he could have done something like that, but he didn't go to the easy guy. He went to the guy that had the hardest challenges. This is a savior that's willing to go where it's uncomfortable. Now, I don't know about you, but many of those people that I keep in that bag sometimes that I trust maybe more than I should, I've experienced this firsthand and maybe you have as well. When I've gone through a period of, of intense brokenness, a lot of times they don't know how to handle me. And a lot of times they, they, they move on, right? And on the one hand, you're like, I can't, I can't be really upset about that because I'm not sure how I would feel, you know, if, if, if the roles are reversed. People are fickle like that, right? Sometimes it just makes us uncomfortable when someone's brokenness is right out there on the outside for us all to see. And we're just kind of like, you know, I'm just going to take a step back from that. But Jesus didn't shy away at all from going right up to that man, the one that had been there forever, the one that looked the most hopeless, the one that probably himself felt that he was the most at a disadvantage in that place. And that's who he came up to that day. And what did he say to him when he saw him? End of verse six. He says, this maybe kind of came across as a cruel question in the moment. You know, like, Hey man, do you want to be healed? Well, Jesus, that is why I'm here. Okay, <laughs> That is literally why I'm here. But do you want to be healed? Right? He was offering him something that he couldn't get. A man that was far from healing he brought himself as the healer close to him. A true savior is not turned away by my brokenness. But this is the second thing, and we'll be, we're gonna hang on to this one for a while. A true savior exposes the futility of my self-made saviors. He exposes the futility of my self-made saviors. Let's keep reading there, verse six. He says, do you want to be healed? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, underline that, and at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. See, it's not that there was a, a misunderstanding of what the man, or of what Jesus was said to the man. The man comprehended what Jesus was asking him. Do you want to be healed? He's like, well, yes, of course. But he's like, but here's the deal, Jesus. Like, unless I can get to the pool over there, there ain't any healing happening today, right? That's the challenge. And like, I've been laying here so long, and every single time I try to get to that spot, someone, someone gets in the water before me. It's always someone else's lucky day. It's never mine. That's the idea that he had. And in that moment, that pool that pool itself was to that man the greatest hope for his salvation in that moment, right? I mean, you could relate to that, right? Couldn't you? I mean, I think I would feel that way too, especially if I didn't know who I was talking to in that moment. But you know what the kind of convicting thing to me is? Is that you and I, we know who Jesus is. And the offer that he makes, do you want to be healed, is still on the table, and in spite of that, in spite of the, who we know him to be and what he's said, we are still looking at the pool to say, Jesus, I do want to be healed, but it's going to happen this way, 
right? See, we are all waiting by the pool of something or someone for saving in this life. That's a reality. And sometimes we get up and change pools, right? But it's always something that's out of, just out of reach. If I could have this particular financial situation, if I could have this particular relationship in play in my life, that would give me so much joy. I would truly experience what it means to be alive if this happened in this particular way. And Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is standing there beside me saying, but do you want to be healed? And we, sh- we push away his hand and say, Jesus, not now. All right? You're one of my tools in my bag, but this isn't your play. That's, my, that's, where, I, that's where I'm looking. And we're keeping our, keeping our eyes on that pool. You know, these, those self-made saviors that we build up. Like I said, it could be material saviors. And by the way, this isn't just a, a rich man's game. You know, this, is, this is if I've got it or I don't have it. Right? Material possession can be, to, be a savior to me. Whether I'm like, if I'm insistent, if I did have it, I would, that, would, that would be great for me. Or even when I've got it, I'm like, I need more, or I've got to protect what I've got. That can be a savior to me. Also, you know, like I said, relationships can do that. But you know, even in, the, in, in our day today, sociopolitical saviors, and I'm not just talking about candidates, but I mean, even like this belief, like if, if there was just world peace, then things would play out. But the problem is, though, there's not going to be peace without Jesus in the mix, right? He's the author of what that even is. But yet we're looking ahead at, with a vision of, of a very like personally shaped vision of what that could look like. It's hanging out at the pool. And let me tell you, some of us have been hanging out at that pool for a long time. And it's just as hopeless. And it's just as out of reach. And even the best that we can do in our own strength is not enough to get to that place. And it's incredibly frustrating. And it leaves us laying there as broken people, desperate for healing, desperate for saving, but not willing to take our eyes off of the pool. So why? Why are we comfortable with failing saviors like that? Why do we get comfortable with that? First, we have the wrong idea of what being healed actually looks like, right? We think being healed, we equate that with being satisfied or being comfortable, right? Being secure, right? God, if you, if you want to heal me of the things I'm going through, it should be pain-free. That's my definition of what healing is. That's no reality, though, in God's words. Never laid out that we're not going to experience pain because sin brought pain into this world. And by the way, you and I contribute to that every day. It's been like that since the very first man and woman. We started that process. We brought it into the world. God never said we would not experience pain. But he did say your hope can't be in the experience of not having pain. That can't be, that can't be your hope. It's got to be in something else. I've got the wrong idea of what it is. I have a very narrow vision of what my life being healed would look like. You know what I'm so glad for? I'm so glad that Jesus' ability to change my life and to heal me is not restricted or limited to my own ability to come up with what that definition would look like. I'm glad that I don't have to set the pace for what that would look like. I'm glad, just like this man, on that day, don't you think that he started that day very differently than the way that it ended in his mind of what was gonna go down? I don't know how he got out there. I don't know if he slept out there, but either way, he got out to the place. He laid down on his bed. And on that day, he had an idea like maybe this could be the day, but it's only gonna happen if it works out this way. There was not a clue in his mind. 
It was not even on his mind that someone else, the God of the universe, was going to interrupt his day and step there right where he was and come to his place in his brokenness and offer his hand and completely change his life in that moment. He didn't have that expectation, did he? And yet it happened all the same. So we have a very narrow vision of what being healed looks like. And so we're comfortable sometimes holding on to that hope that maybe my life will change. Maybe I'll finally get it right. Maybe I'll hit the lottery, you know, of life and things will finally work out. We have the wrong idea, but then also we've, I think for some of us, we've grown used to being broken. We've grown, we've grown used to the idea, I'm never going to get there. You know, and this is, this is pure speculation on my part, but I imagine if this man has been laying in that spot by the pool for as long as God's word seems to imply he was, don't you think he had some days where in reality, even in his response to Jesus there, he acknowledged, like, I've been here for so long. It's just out of reach. Every single time I start to move myself in that direction, I'm just not fast enough and someone always gets there before me. I guess I'm always gonna be this way. And even take the fact that scripture says he had a bed there. Now, I don't think he had like a sealy posture pedic or something like that up there by the pool of Bethesda, but he had a comfortable spot he had made for himself, sort of like to just showing, like I've accepted the fact I ain't going anywhere for a while. He's grown comfortable in his brokenness. And I think many of us do the same thing as it relates to that. We've accepted the fact, like, you know what? I've made a lot of mistakes. Probably going to keep doing that. I don't see how anything could possibly change in my life after the things that I've done or the things that other people have done to me. I'm a broken person, and that's how I'm always going to be. And many of us carry that around like a label, like an identity, lead into every conversation, every relationship with a person, assuming they're going to feel the same way about me as I feel about myself. They're just going to bail on me, right? Sure, I'll trust them a little bit. They're just going to drop the ball. You know, they're going to betray me like the other people did in my life. You know, something always is working against me. You know, that one, there's something always chasing after me, trying to destroy me. And I've just, I've leaned into that. I've accepted that as a reality. I think some of us are like that, right? We've grown used to being broken, I think some of us, though, are too weak to try to stand. What did Jesus say to the man? The first, first off, I love that Jesus didn't, he didn't take that moment to correct the man in the moment. Like, the man's like, hey, I do want to be healed. I just can't get over there. Jesus didn't stop and say, now, son, that's pretty foolish. Don't you know who you're talking to? <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need the magic water, okay? He didn't do any of that. He didn't shame him for thinking that that was the way that would bring him hope and salvation. He just looked at him with compassion in his eyes, not judgment. And what did he say? Get up. Just get up. Take up your bed. You're not going to need that anymore. And get out of here. Get up. Now, I don't know how long it took from the moment that Jesus said the words, get up, to where the man suddenly felt like he actually could. But you have to wonder if a split second in his mind, he didn't have the idea of like, well, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like, when's the last time anyone's told me to get up, right? I mean, that, I, mean I appreciate what you're trying to do here. If I could get up, why would I be laying here, right? But in that moment, he did have a choice. 
He had a choice. He had a choice if he was going to believe what Jesus said and follow through on it. And then physically, no matter who was watching, because you know some other guys were over here wondering what's going on. No matter who was watching, he got up on those shaky legs, maybe first. Picked up that bed, did a little dance, and got out of there, right? He had the faith to obey. I think many of us, we know that Jesus offers life. Maybe we, we, we've responded to that, that, that question that he asked, do you want to be healed? Personally, say, yes, Jesus, I want it. And he's like, great, follow me. And we're like, ah. See, that's the part that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Because Jesus, again, I think you are a savior in my life. I'll put you in my bag with the other saviors. But I'm still keeping one eye over here just in case this works out. And we don't have the faith to get up off the ground and to stand in what he's called us to do. Obedience comes through healing. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That is taking God at his word and follow through, following through on it and benefiting from what happens when we do. That's what it is right there. So what do we need to do? What did the man do? He believed Jesus. He took his words at face value and he responded to it. And it completely changed his life, right? But it goes on here. So a true savior exposes the futility of my self-made saviors. But it all, a true savior also does not settle for surface level healing. Does not settle for surface level healing. You know, if I am in need of a major heart Surgery. There's something going wrong in my heart and it needs to be addressed. I don't want to go to the doctor and have the doctor just tell me, yes, you've got a major heart problem. You know, go home and take two aspirin, you'll be fine. Right? I'm not even a medical person. I know that's not going to cut it. Right? If you need surgery, what do I want to happen? I actually want the surgery to happen. Right? So the problem is corrected. I don't just want the doctor to put a band-aid on my chest here and say, good luck. Right? I want complete saving. I want total healing in that sense. A true savior will not settle for surface level healing. Uh, verse number nine, keep reading with me here. Again, we read this a minute ago, but at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now listen to this. Now that day was the Sabbath. That'll come into play here in just a minute too. So the Jews, the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. All right, what's going on here? The Sabbath being God commanding his people, his covenant people, to reserve one day a week where they did not work. Right? That was, it was an opportunity for them to worship by, by responding in not working to God and taking a rest as he had told them. It was a gift from God. In fact, God modeled that in creation. Six days he worked, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, right? And throughout all of scripture, this idea of rest is associated not just with a physical rest, but like a complete rest, this, this concept of shalom. I don't know if you've heard that word before. The, the rest, the peace that God brings, a perfect peace. That's what, it's re, that's what it was representative of. But here's the problem, is that these religious leaders took God's command to take a day of rest and acknowledge that we are human and he is God. They took that and they added a bunch of extra things on top of it, all right? 
So, so much to say, like if God, you know, God said don't work, okay, so we're going to lay out exactly what that means. You can only walk this many steps or it's considered working. You, know, you can only lift this many pounds or it's considered working. You can't do this task, you can't do that task. And so they added things into the law. And so this was one of them. Right, so these religious leaders kind of were like the big tattletales that went around all over Israel. And they were trying to find people that were violating the law. And they let them know. So they saw this man. Imagine how he must feel. Literally five minutes ago, he was laying on the ground. Now he's up walking around, carrying his, his bed around. And these guys walk over you know, to spoil the day. And like, hey, you can't do that. It's Sabbath day. He's kind of like, dude, I wasn't walking like five minutes ago. Right? I'm I'm trying to go home. I'm walking myself home for once. It's never happened before. And he's carrying this thing around, uh, carrying this bed with him. And, uh, and they're just getting so bent out of shape about it. And so it continues there. In verse 12, they ask him, who's the man that said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was yet, for Jesus had withdrawn himself as there was a crowd in the place. So afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well. Now sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is not the kind of savior that you can departmentalize. He's not the kind of savior that just wants to deal with one aspect of my life and ignore the glaring problems that are elsewhere in there. If he's gonna save, he's gonna save all the way, right? What good of a savior would he be if he didn't? So in this moment, Jesus has withdrawn himself. The religious rulers are having a little mini conference about how they should handle this terrible infraction of carrying a bed on the Sabbath day. And Jesus finds the man over in the temple by himself and he comes up to him privately and he, and he tells him this. He's like, he's like, brother, you're well, but see that you sin. See that you do not sin so nothing worse may happen to you. And you may ask yourself like, I don't know, this dude had a pretty rough life already, right? I mean, 38 years he was invalid, couldn't walk. You know, laid out for days, months, years around this pool, hoping something was going to happen. What possibly worse? What could be possibly worse than that, Jesus? Jesus was not just looking in that moment at the man's physical lameness. But he's looking at the spiritual lameness that was on there. This is the reality. This man, like you and like me, broken at the core because of my sin. The things that I do that are in direct defiance of a holy God. And Jesus, knowing why he had come in that time, what he was there to fulfill, was not just to go around and do miracles and heal physical healing, but to be representative of the bigger ministry that he came to do, which was to restore broken people to a holy God. And so in that moment, he didn't avoid the uncomfortable nature of the topic of sin. But sometimes that word just makes us super uncomfortable, doesn't it? He didn't avoid it. He jumped right in the deep end. He's like, you're healed here. And you need to go, take this moment, mark it in your life and leave and sin no more Then nothing worse than happen to you. I don't want to see you separated from, your, from a holy God. I don't want you to miss what I'm going to be doing here not in the not too distant future when I'm gonna be on that cross dying and suffering humility and suffering shame for you. See, Jesus, the whole reason he was there in flesh in that moment was a testament to what he was there to do. Right? He had to come in to, to be born into flesh because that's what allowed him to experience the same things that you and I experience. You don't think Jesus had the same temptations 
with, this, with the nature that, that he had as well, to see things in the world that was around him and, and be tempted to put trust into that. Like the scripture says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet with one important distinction, what was it? He did not sin. So for sure, Jesus was tempted to be like, you know what? That could be a nice way to live. And who would exactly live in luxury there in Nazareth as a carpenter's son, right? But he'd be like, man, that guy's donkey is a lot better than mine. Really go for a nice donkey, you know? You don't think Jesus is ever kind of like, you know, I, other people my age are getting married and having families. And he, he's still human in that sense, right? He experienced some of these same things. The temptation to lay down there and wait by my pool for something to happen. But he was obedient to the Father. And that obedience took him right to that cross. And that's why he, he gave up his life willingly to pay the price that was mine to pay, my life for my sin. If I believe, if I take him at his word, I can be healed spiritually and completely. And so when Jesus told this man to take up his bed and walk, I think that's such a great picture for us. As we're camped out at the pool of whatever that thing is that's drawing us into thinking that can save us. When he says, get up and walk, he's like, get up from where you are, take the trappings of the comfort that you found in that and walk completely away from where you were before and follow me. Yes. It's walk away, but come to. What does the Bible call that? Repenting. It's repenting. It's turning completely around, leaving it behind. That's not gonna give me life. That's not gonna heal me at all. I know what that end game is. I've seen it before. Why am I still sitting here on the side of the pool hoping this time it might be different, right? And yet that's exactly what we do. Jesus said, son, you've been healed. Now go and sin no more. You're not gonna find life in this. Come and follow me. And scripture says there in verse 14 that it was Jesus who found him. And I think that's important to highlight. Because today may be the day for you, friend, whether you're here in person or you're online, or perhaps this is the very first time where this message is resonating with you about who Jesus is and what he offers. When he's offering that hand of you to be healed where you are, that's so much greater than this physical existence that we are in. Now, does that mean Jesus doesn't care about the physical? No. Why would he have invested time to heal the man's legs if he didn't care about the physical part of who we are? Why even have bodies at all that he made if he didn't care about that? Right? He made this world. He made us in his image to be in it. He made us to enjoy relationships with people. He made us to enjoy you know, having hobbies and looking forward to having, you know, doing my job well and having success in what I do. Those are not necessarily, on the surface, those aren't bad things. He set those things in motion. It's just that where our heart has been camping out, putting all of our hope and trust with, that's where we've gotten sideways. So Jesus absolutely cares about the physical side. He cares about the struggles that you're going through right now, whether that's finding work, whether that's wondering what school's gonna look like this year, whether that's having to have activities and things that I had planned canceled and having to trust that he's still in control. He definitely cares about that, but he's not gonna do a halfway job of saving you. So he's gonna go after the heart like he did with this man. He's always lovingly, patiently coming to us. And if you're hearing him today, don't ignore his voice saying, do you want to be healed? 
pick up your bed and walk and let's go and follow me. Follow me to where that life is. That's what he's doing today. He's a, a true savior because he's not going to settle for surface level healing. But this is the last one this morning. A true savior gives me rest because he is the one doing the saving. He gives me rest because he's the one doing the saving. Verse 15, it says, the man went away. He told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, breaking their little rules. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. See, those religious leaders were upset because there was work happening on the Sabbath day. Ironically, it was Jesus and God who were the ones that gave the command to take the Sabbath day, right? And the, what was the point of that? We said that earlier. What was the point of that? It was to point forward to the rest that all would have that put their faith and trust in him for all of eternity. A rest that's beyond just like a physical rest, but an eternal peace to my core. A true savior will give me that kind of peace. Jesus was the point of the Sabbath. Scripture calls him the Lord of the Sabbath. One of his names in Isaiah was the Prince of Peace. That is who he is. And Jesus' response is the very reason why we can have peace. He says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. I don't take days off. I'm not done saving people. I'm not done asking people if they want to be healed and changing that life. I'm not done yet. And until that day when we're together, I won't be done. My father is working and I'm working. When I have a true savior, I'm at peace in every area of my life. I don't need the bag anymore. You know, it doesn't mean I don't have relationships with people. Don't misunderstand. Like, that's not, my, that's not where my hope is. I'm not squatting down at the pool hoping that's going to work out anymore. I'm up walking where Jesus is taking me. And as long as he's with me, it doesn't matter what everything else looks like, right? That peace may be the greatest measurement today of your confidence in whatever Savior you're surrendered to this morning. If you're not at peace today, that should be a tip off to you that something's off. Whether you've known Jesus for five minutes now or whether you've known him for 50 years, if in the moment right now you're not at peace, I wanna ask you, is it because in some way in your heart you're sitting beside of a pool and your eyes are on that pool, maybe one eye over here is on Jesus and Jesus is asking you, begging you in love and compassion, do you want to be healed of that today? Do you want to experience the reality of peace that I offer to you and healing a situation? And you're like, but Jesus, isn't that where I should go? You know, there's two kinds of people in this story that need healing. There's the man that was lame, everybody knew what his affliction was. His brokenness was out on the outside for everyone to see. You know, that may be you today. Like your, your life, from, that, from the outset, you got a lot of history. A lot of that history's not good. There's a lot of things that you're ashamed of, a lot of things that other people did to you that have broken you down. You're in need of healing today. 
But there's another person in there. It's those religious leaders. They may on the outside have looked like they had their act together. But the whole fact that they went around telling everyone else how they, should post to be, how they were supposed to live showed where their hope was. You know what it was? It's himself. Keeping their act together. Maintaining power over the people. That was the pool that they were camped at that day. Jesus offers the same hand to you, if that's you this morning. You've been putting on a sham for many years of a relationship with Jesus Christ in word, but not personal. There's no judgment in that moment. It's just Jesus standing there with the outstretched hand saying, do you wanna be healed today? And the answer is the same. That's the best part. I can be at peace and say, yes, Lord, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm following you today and know that the work is done because Jesus is the one that did the saving on the cross. It's not up to me. It's not up to me to make a name for myself, to to have a life that looks a certain way. I just wanna honor Jesus and be with him in this moment. He's the one that's made me alive. Love that Jesus didn't say that day, do you wanna be comfortable? And he didn't say, do you wanna feel inspired? And he didn't even say, do you wanna live your best life now? He said, do you want to be healed? So let me ask you this morning, do you? Do you wanna be healed? Today's the day. Pray with me. God, thank you so much. That Jesus is a true savior. Not a savior that's something that temporarily makes me feel safe. Not a savior that's inconsistent when it gets uncomfortable. Not a savior that only cares about the physical things. But a savior that's fight, that fought for my heart. That fought for my life by giving his own. Gotta pray for each of us here today where I believe either we are or we have been like this man sitting on the edge of a pool hoping for something to happen. God, give us courage today to take the offer that you extend and be healed and get up, take up our bed and walk and follow you. It's in Jesus' powerful name I can pray this confidently. Amen.